Patrick. Uh, those were some really nice things that you said, and uh, now I have to live up to that. Thank you. I think you set the bar a little bit high. Uh, but as Patrick said, I'm an elder at Grace Reformed Church. Uh, it is actually the second church I've served as an elder on, and I guess technically in this transition period, this is my third. Uh, it served as an elder on two churches simultaneously. It's a, a bit daunting. Uh, but that's where we fit in. He explained all that, whereas we sent them out. I did the same thing whenever I was at the previous church that sent Grace Reformed. Grace Reformed is a church plant that is about to come up on its four-year mark as a church. Like, we are a very young church, uh, not as young as you guys, because you guys are coming up on a year. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, coming up on a year, but we're coming up on our fourth year, and the same sort of thing happened. When we launched, we actually had the uh, benefit of having a larger group of elders because we came from a larger church. So we sent elders with that church. So I actually le left one church, went to another church to be an elder there. But in the time in the middle of that, I was still serving as an elder at the other church because we were still one board. Uh, but as we start to grow here, and you can see that there's more and more chairs being filled, we've obviously, or you guys have obviously moved from Agathus to here because of all the people, there's going to be a need for more elders. Like with what we have, the model we have right now is is working really well. Uh, we get to love and care for Patrick. We get to pray for you guys. We get to come down here and do communion and, and at least be in front of you in those ways. But as the church grows, uh, it's going to be something where there's Patrick's going to need his own elder board, and we're eventually going to start phasing uh, me and Eric and Curtis and John uh, out of the day-to-day -day operations down here. So that's what I came to talk to you about today is like, what does it mean to be an elder? What does it mean to be in church leadership? As I mentioned, I came from another church to a plant and then now a descending church. And I was asked to be an elder at a very difficult time in the life of our sending church. And so I was, had a little bit of apprehension whenever they asked me to be elder, because I did really not know what that meant. I actually didn't know it meant that I would be up filling the pulpit and preaching sometimes. Where I learned this is when I was asked to be an elder, and this did not help my apprehension at all, I was having a discussion with some of the pastoral staff at the old church, and someone mentioned the fact that, and this is something that I had never thought of before or considered, but someone mentioned the fact that the Bible actually makes no distinction between pastor and elder. And so this was actually a really heavy thought for a guy who was already thinking, I'm probably not worthy of this position of elder. Now, to be sure, in a modern context, we do have full-time pastors. And I was not naive enough to think that my position as elder would be anything anywhere close to that of what a hired pastor goes through. We clearly have different job descriptions in our modern context. But to be told that biblically an elder is actually a shepherd of God's flock in the same way that a pastor's is was a little bit daunting. Because in the context I grew up in, elders weren't really thought of that way. They were predominantly administrators. They carried on the business of running God's church, the administrative things. Oftentimes they were groups of very successful men in the congregation. They were businessmen. They were high-ranking individuals in their respective workplaces. They knew how to make sound administrative decisions, and they could help facilitate growth within the congregation. 
And yes, in my memory, a lot of these men actually did possess a wealth of theological knowledge. They weren't simply administrators. But it seems that they were tasked more with the day-to-day running the business of the church rather than shepherding the flock. So this was a shift in my thinking. Now let's be clear, I was fairly certain I was going to be out of my depth even as just someone who was there to make administrative decisions. But now to know I'm serving in a position that saw no distinction biblically in the role of elder or pastor at a church that viewed it that way, I realized this is actually a really heavy responsibility. So I agreed to it because I have little discernment uh, and I want to make people happy. You know? I was happy the opportunity to serve that church in that capacity. And now I've been an elder in two different churches for roughly six years, and the congregation that I serve at is continuing to grow. And the congregation here is continuing to grow, so I feel like it's a good opportunity to talk about how your church and your sending church views church leadership. You've probably all heard sermons on church leadership, both what it takes to be an elder, what the qualifications are to be a deacon, and I'm not trying to rehash any of that. I just thought it might be interesting to hear some of these things about the way it works out day to day from the perspective of an elder. An obvious place to start when you preach a sermon like this would be in 1 Timothy. So if you want to follow along, you could actually turn to the book of Acts. That's right. Little curveball there. And to add to the confusion, I noticed in the bulletin it has a passage in Ecclesiastes printed. Uh, So is that what you're preaching through? Yeah, so I'm not going to step in and take over what he's doing in Ecclesiastes. So we're just like all kinds of verses, but we're actually going to be in Acts this morning. Uh, So I didn't want to be so obvious, and a couple of you chuckled, and I think most people in this room are familiar with the qualifications that are laid out in 1 Timothy. Like, if I just preach that sermon, you've heard that sermon before. I don't think there's a big different spin I could put on that. Some of you might actually start tuning out. I've heard this. I could actually go listen to a podcast on this. But what I want to focus on today is what it means when someone who meets these criteria are actually confirmed to the position. What does that look like in your day-to-day service? Now, at Grace Reformed, we reference Ephesians 4 a lot, and by proxy, I'm pretty sure that Patrick has probably referenced it a few times in talking about the purpose of the church. But several years before writing the epistle to the church in Ephesus, Paul addressed the leaders of the church in Ephesus in person. And that account is where we're going in Acts today, in uh, Acts 20, verses 28 and following. Give a couple minutes for those of you to find it and get there. So we're going to start reading in Acts 20, verse 28. And I'm going to read that section of scripture there where Patrick, or uh, Patrick, where Paul is addressing the leadership at the church in Ephesus. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years... I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So you can see from the beginning of this passage that Paul is using language that paints the elder slash overseer as a shepherd. He refers to the congregation as the flock and makes mention of fierce wolves infiltrating the body of believers at Ephesus. This language is not exclusive to this section of scripture. Many times the idea of a shepherd tending to his flock is utilized when dealing with the relationship between church leaders and the congregation they serve. In John 21, Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep in that famous exchange. And this example uh, is not something that necessarily resonates as well with us as it did in that time period in which the writers lived because we didn't know the context of shepherd and sheep. Likely, there's very few of you in this current context, in this room, who've ever had the experience of having sheep. And even if you have had sheep, you probably are more like me, and though, even though you may have had sheep, you have no idea what it's like to be a true shepherd, and I mean this in a literal sense, as you are tending to actual sheep. I had, when I was growing up, I grew up out in the sticks in a rural county in West Tennessee, and I think at one any given time, like, we had about 15 sheep. That was, like, the most we had. Because we were raising them through part of some 4-H program, and we would go show them at county fairs and that sort of thing. That's kind of redneck that is before you. But they did not require the level of care that it was required in the days of the, Paul's writing in, it, uh, in the book of Acts of a full-time shepherd to a flock of sheep. We would put up electric fence out there to keep them from wandering off, and we could throw some food out there. And if the, if the weather was, if it was the summertime, they had plenty of grass to eat, so there was not a very labor-intensive process. But back in those days, the shepherd offered constant protection and oversight of the flock. It was not a glamorous position. I think we tend to view pastors and elders with some sort of status, but when they were spoken of, in the context of shepherding in the Bible, it was a reference to their role as a humble protector. So in the outset of this passage, Paul tells them to pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. And I mentioned earlier, the office of elder has been reduced in some contexts as administrators, and while there is usually a solid theological base of knowledge, and they can usually apply that lovingly to members of the congregations they serve, but this view of an elder as an administrator of the church can sometimes be detrimental to the spiritual health, spiritual health of the elder himself and by proxy the congregation. So Paul tells the elders in Ephesus to pay careful attention to themselves too and not just to the business of the day and not just to the congregation. In order to effectively shepherd a church, the shepherds have to ensure they are capable and they must care for their own spiritual needs as well. This is why, as elders, we meet regularly, twice a month. And why a large component of our meeting centers around theological discussion and not just business. In fact, we take time every other meeting to focus specifically on theological training. Uh, we would talk about, we'll have John go through, John Moffin is a pastor at Grace Reformed Church, uh, with whom I serve up there. John will talk to various different elders on our board about sermon preparation and things like that and help us uh, 
with preparing lessons in order to teach. Patrick is involved in a lot of these meetings as well, as he mentioned that he serves with us as a part of his elder board. And while I mentioned that there is no distinction biblically in pastor and elder, there's absolutely a distinction in this day in the terms of the training and the amount of time that the pastor can devote to certain things, such as counseling and teaching. So our pastor will guide us through these things, and uh, as I mentioned, the sermon prep, and we'll do this to follow the wisdom of Paul offered where he says uh, that we don't neglect our own spiritual well-being here in Acts. It's biblical wisdom, as we can see in Scripture, but there's actually a lot of common sense to it. In my job, I have strong ties to the mental health community, and I'm constantly interacting with mental health professionals, therapists, counselors, and, and the like. In my day job, I oversee a program that pairs mental health clinicians with police officers, and they answer calls for service that deal with uh, individuals that are undergoing behavioral health crises. And one of the things I've learned is that a lot of therapists are actually in therapy. They make it a point to tend to their own mental well-being in order to more effectively serve their clients. And in fact, as a part of the program that I oversee, I make sure we conduct wellness checks with the counselors for the same purpose because our progr program would actually expose counselors to many things that they might not see in a clinical office setting as they're out in the field with police officers. So we want to provide with them with an opportunity to be cared for. It's wise if you are going to be in a service position that you care for yourself prior to caring for others or you can deplete your own capacity. So in this way, your elders are cared for. On top of the training, we spend time being open and frank with each other about our struggles. We confess our sins. We encourage each other in the word of God. Past caring for ourselves, Paul tells in verse 28, pay attention to yourselves. And then the next thing he says, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we are to pay attention to ourselves and make sure that we are fit, so to speak, in order to do our jobs as elders. But we're also to pay special attention to the flock. We're supposed to pay attention to you, to care for you, the congregation. Following this guidance in scripture, we as elders continually examine ourselves and we do so that we can effectively care for the church. And look at what Paul says next in verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. Part of caring for your spiritual needs as a church is being able to recognize the wolves that may slip into the flock and to be equipped in order to defend the flock against these wolves. We've all heard the phrase wolf in sheep's, wolf in sheep's clothing, meaning someone who uh, seeks to do harm but disguises themselves as a friend. But you know, wolves are actually, in a real context, hard to spot even without disguises. The shepherd always had to be alert in those days, watching over his flock, because wolves are hunters. Wolves don't come barging out of the woodline, barking and howling full speed. No, they stalk, they prey. 
They're very methodical. They creep up among the flock and they separate the weak. So a shepherd has to be adept at spotting the predators. This is how it is in the church. False doctrines can creep in unnoticed if your elders are not careful, if you are not careful. This is why speaking the truth to one another constantly is so important. The Secret Service, the agency that's responsible for protecting the president and other foreign dignitaries, along with that, it also investigates financial crimes. One of them, and probably the most, uh, uh, the number one thing they do is they investigate counterfeiting. And I've heard it said once, and man, I hope this is true because it works way better for this illustration, so don't go fact check this and tell me if it's not. But I've heard it said once that they don't do a whole lot of training on spotting counterfeit bills. They train to spot the real thing. The idea being if you're intimately familiar with all the intricacies of a $100 bill and every countermeasure they put in it in order to prevent people from counterfeiting it, that if you come across a fake, it's going to be easily detected. It'll stand out like a sore thumb. That's the way it is with doctrine. As elders, we strive to provide our congregations with solid teaching and training in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when the, then the wolves come in with false doctrine, we can recognize it. We don't have to go train ourselves on all the other theological myths and things that are going on. You speak the gospel to each other so that when something comes in that is contrary to it, it is immediately recognizable. And this is not only from wolves from the outside. Those are easy. But look what Paul says in verse 30. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So it's not just from the outside. But we can also face this threat from within. So we as elders and you as church members must have your anchor rooted so deep in the gospel of Jesus Christ that anything contrary that comes into this context would be glaringly apparent. In this short passage, Paul reminds them of the true gospel, one thing they are to protect and defend, and the thing in which the leadership is to encourage the church in Ephesus. In 31, he says, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for Three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to what? To the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know these hands ministered to my necessities and those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than receive. He says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inherent inheritance among those all who are sacrificed. Paul, as he was leaving, and what he was certain for the last time, seeing these men in person, and we know this because if you carry on to the end of chapter 20, it says they were sorrowful because they would not see his face again. He made certain one more time to tell them that God's grace is sufficient. He's getting ready to depart and he tells them not to ensure that they have their quiet time in the morning or to make sure they do what they can to memorize scripture. He doesn't give them tasks. He does not give them law. He says, I commend you to God in the word of his grace. Paul's messages are always so on point like that. I commend you to God and the word of his grace. I know nothing else but Christ and him crucified in 1 Corinthians. 
There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus in Romans. Paul is constantly giving his flock and those he is training Christ. We could go on, but you can see that Paul is teaching and encouraging church leaders and church members. He constantly circles back to this fact that the grace is found in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that is what it saves, and that is what we should build our ministries on. There are a lot of things that might come in, new, shiny fads that come in, and they sound amazing, but it's rubbish. Paul encourages Christians in the grace of Christ because he knows that regardless of how amazing something new may sound or how appealing it can be, it pales in comparison to the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. The chasm that existed between you and the Father was bridged through only one work, and that was the work of Jesus Christ. And by constantly reminding ourselves of this simple truth, the way Paul did, we are able to quickly identify any false teaching and any wolves that might enter our context. And therefore, as elders, we're able to more effectively protect and serve the church bodies in which we are made overseers. But there's still a more to it than that, being an elder. Encouraging one another in the gospel is far and away the most important aspect of shepherding. It's fundamental. It's the foundation, and without that is the foundation, any other act of service to one another will not last. If your ministry is not rooted in the truth that your works are meaningless, and if you don't believe that, well, let's go look at something else Paul said in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And I like what he does here, because it's easy for someone to say that, right? Like, I can say that, because you look at me, you don't know me, but you know I'm a sinner. And you know Patrick's a sinner, but Paul had a resume. So as he goes through voice verse uh, 4, he starts giving his qualifications. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He held all of these things that the Pharisees held up as this is what you have to do uh, to be holy and blameless and saved, basically. And he had done it all. And he tells all of them that in his writing in Philippians. And he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So as Paul is going through and realizes that he has upheld the law in the way that many people would see as perfection, in Philippians, he makes sure he says that meant nothing. The only thing that meant anything is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, I also picked this verse because it parallels the idea in our root passage of 
and Acts is protecting the congregation from wolves because he starts out saying, look out for dogs, look out for evildoers. He follows by saying, put no confidence in the flesh before running down the list of the accomplishments. And he concludes that saying it's all rubbish. There is no righteousness we have of our own. It's only the righteousness through Christ. So if your ministry, if Patrick's ministry as a pastor, if John Moffat's ministry as a pastor, if our ministry as elders are not rooted in the truth of that your work is meaningless and the only work with the power to save us from sin is the power that was found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it will not last. It is a passing fad. And those come and go. People will continue to search for something more if they're in that context because they've not been giving the living water of the gospel that will quench that thirst permanently. Shifting gears a little bit, several years ago, some friends and I went on a trip to Iowa to participate in a very large cycling event called RAGBRAI. RAGBRAI is an acronym. It stands for the Registers Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa. You start on the west side of Iowa, you ride to the east side of Iowa over seven days. It is the largest touring cycling event in the world, is what I was told. Don't fact check me on that either, like the Secret Service thing. But about 15,000 cyclists from all over the world go to Iowa, of all places, every year to participate in this event, and it was a blast. I'm hoping that I can go back someday. But the year I went, it was billed as the second easiest route in Ragbri history because it was mostly flat for like five of the seven days of the ride. We didn't ride on a lot of elevation. But what people don't tell you about flat rides as opposed to rides in areas like we live in Middle Tennessee where we have a lot of elevation changes and trees and uh, things along the road uh, is that when there are no topographic features in your path, such as hills, rocks, and trees, it means there's also nothing there to block the wind. So as you're riding across flat countryside in Iowa, there are days where we were riding headlong into the wind and it felt like we're riding through mud. There's also no coasting if it's all flat, so it's all straight up pedaling. But as we rode, rode through Iowa, you could see that you'd be riding in a headwind and there would be a bend up ahead and you could see it coming. And you get this feeling that there was relief coming soon. And not only that, sometimes it would be vocalized as the riders who had already gotten to that sweet relief passed it back to the rest of the crowd. You'd hear people yelling, there's a tailwind up ahead. And then it would just cause you to dig deep for just a few more moments until you had that sweet relief provided by Mother Nature and you could pedal easy with the wind at your backs and just open up like a sail and enjoy that for a moment. If your ministry is not rooted in truth, it's often treated like this. If we're going through hard times, there's often no encouragement given in the hope of the finished work of Christ on the cross. There's merely encouragement to keep plotting because there is a tailwind coming. Anybody heard something similar? They might not have used that exact illustration. But that if you just work hard and stick it out through your trials, you are going to be blessed. You're received with a pat on the back. Man, that sounds tough. And you might be told something cliche like, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. And you're encouraged that your trial will end soon and you'll experience that temporal relief and joy that comes with the tailwind. You may be even told the way to get this relief is prayer. Pray hard enough, be faithful enough, and you will be blessed. The problem with all of that is everything that I just said in that section is not true. 
It's not biblical. The truth of the matter is you might be riding into your proverbial headwind the rest of your life. And while prayer can and does bring comfort and peace, it's certainly not in the manner that was just described in the previous section. So as church leaders, we have to be very careful not to give you tasks to accomplish in order to pull yourself up out of your trial because your trial might continue the rest of your time on earth. And then what? If you're constantly told that if you're faithful enough and you pray fervently enough and your prayer will be answered and you'll be granted that tailwind, but then no relief comes, what happens then? Well, you may start to think, well, if that's not true, then when they told me that Christ's finished work on the cross was enough, maybe that's not true either. And you can create these crises of faith where believers would start to think that everything they believe is a lie because of the false doctrine you've put out there. This is why people walk away from churches. They become discouraged to the point that they question the faith that brought them to the church in the first place. And they do it because rather than giving the congregation Christ, the leadership lays more law on the shoulders of the congregation. Paul calls the law perfect and glorious, but you know what he also calls it? He calls it the ministry of death. If you're giving your congregation law, you are giving them the thing that Jesus Christ saved them from. So Paul contrasts this by offering the hope in the one who fulfilled the law and conquered death. He doesn't tell them to obey the law. He gives them Christ and points to hope in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it can get a little confusing, I know, because I could stop there and as earthly struggles go, I might still have done nothing to help you because encouraging you to hold fast as the storm will soon end is a really bad and unbiblical idea. But also smiling at you saying, it's cool, Christ died for you, and patting you on the back that way, still can seem empty and unloving. And you're still being crushed under the weight of your life with no support. So how do we support one another as a church? How do we ensure we properly care for each other? Remember the headwind example that we just had? Do you know how the cyclist handled the headwind? Any of you ever ridden in a group? They get in a pace line. For those of you who don't know what that means, it means you line up either one or two columns. So the force of the wind is distributed amongst the group. In other words, when they're faced with the burden of the wind, the cycling team bands together to help bear one another's burdens. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like something that you, a message you've probably heard Patrick give up here that we are to bear one another's burdens? We strive to do that in our church context. We strive to do it at GRC. Telling someone of the hope they have in the grace of Jesus Christ, while true and correct, and it is based in Scripture, it could actually be discouraging to the believer in the midst of a trial, if not accompanied by some sort of action on the part of your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's kind of like our pastor's been going through the book of James and uh, preaching in James, like the gospel produces faith, which leads to action horizontally when serving and loving our fellow Christians. When he says faith without works is dead, it's not in the way that it's often used where it says that uh, you have to work or you're not going to be saved. It's just that 
that, that it's dead faith if you are not helping serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you share your struggles with the members of your church body and you're greeted with, man, that sounds tough, I'll be praying for you. If you hear that enough, you're just going to stop sharing your burdens and you're eventually going to feel less loved and you're going to possibly move on. Now, I'm not to say that prayer is not important because I know sometimes it is an encouragement to know someone is praying for you. And sometimes, yes, that actually can be enough to have that extra bit of strength knowing that you're being prayed for. But it can't be all you offer all the time. If your friend's trapped under a log and you see him and say, man, that's tough, I'll be praying for you, and then you walk away, I mean, what kind of a jerk would you be there? Get down there and help your brother lift that log. Grab multiple congregants with you if you need to and help him bear that burden. Now, we do this as a church through various ministries. We have men's and women's Bible study. You guys have those same things here. Children's ministry, youth ministries. Those things in our GRC are growing. I see here they are growing as well as I see self-serve nurseries. So still need for some workers to actually make that not a self-serve nursery. Patrick didn't tell me to do that, but I just figured I'd throw that out there myself. But we are continuing to expand things like that as a church to ensure that no one feels neglected. We want to make sure as the leadership of the church that the only thing you get is not just from the pulpit and not just pats on the back and, hey, man, we're praying for you. Because we want to make sure that you feel loved and supported. Let's go back to the starting point in Acts 20, verse 28, where he says, Let's read the whole thing again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not see Snyder Day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands have ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. So look what Paul says after he encourages them in the gospel. He then goes on to thank them for ministering to his physical needs and to the needs of his companions as well. And he tells them that they must help the weak. His instruction to the elders is to give them Christ and help bear their burdens. It's a bit of a paraphrase and a simplification. But it's a clear message from Paul to the leadership at the church in Ephesus on how they are able to to carry out the ministry of the local church. This is what we strive to do as elders. We pay attention to ourselves as we want to ensure we meet the qualifications placed on the elders from Paul's letter to Timothy, and most notably, and in other places, such as Titus. We share our burdens with one another in that context in order that we, not only as elders, but congregants, can have someone help us carry our load when it becomes too heavy. Then we're able to pay attention to you, the church, Not as those who will stand over you as authority figures, but as fellow sinners in need of Christ. Like you've probably heard, we are all in equal need of grace. And that is not just a slogan, it's the truth. Your elders, if they do it right, serve alongside you. 
They do not serve over you. And we strive to do your best to see that you're loved and that you are encouraged and that your burdens do not become so heavy that you begin to question your faith in Christ. As elders, we protect the congregation entrusted to us. We want to be aware of the wolves and the false doctrines that creep into the context so they can be identified and expunged without hesitation. It is why the confession is so important. We call it our confession because we confirm it, affirm it to be true, but we hold to the 1689 London Baptist of the Confession. In fact, it's centuries old. We didn't write it, and it gives us great confidence that men centuries ago went through Scripture and decided these were the foundations of the gospel, and they documented it in that confession. And after all this time, the Word of God is still as true, and nothing these men wrote about Scripture in that confession has ceased to be any more or any less accurate or useful. As the elders did for Paul in Ephesus, we want to offer more than just lip service to your trials. We want this to be a church where your faith is lived out and exposed by more than mere words, but by the actions that we do out of love for one another. Look at what Paul says when he's writing to the same church later in, this, in, in Ephesians 4. In verse 11, he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The easy parts to identify in the equipping of the saints are the teaching points, the way they're played out. There, there's plenty of classes offered uh, at this church in order to educate you, the congregation. That's a given, but there's another important part of equipping our congregation for the work of ministry and building up the body. It's how we care for one another. I also want to make another point about church leadership, and this will be my final point, and how it plays out in the context at uh, Covenant Grace and at Grace Reformed. And to do that, I'll go back to the cycling illustration, if you'll indulge me. Because one key part of the efficiency of a pace line and how successful it is in protecting everyone in the group is there must be proper rotation in order to offer rest. You see at the front, whoever is leading is absorbing the absolute brunt of the wind and they're shielding their teammates from it. And in turn, they're helping them all bear that burden of the wind resistance. But after a few minutes or miles or whatever the predetermined rotation you have set if you're in one of these pace lines, the front rider will drop to the rear and a new rider will take up the lead. This ensures that no one team member will burn themselves out prematurely. At Grace Reformed, elders are nominated and subsequently confirmed for a term of three years. And after that, they're put up before the congregation to be reaffirmed. In some cases, they actually elect to not have their name placed back on that slate of elders because they feel it is in their best interest or the best interest of the church to step away and recharge. An elder who takes this sabbatical can always be reaffirmed at a later date if they're brought back up through the process, but it's important for the health of the church that your leaders don't ride too far at the front of the pace line, lest they become fatigued and pass that fatigue along to the congregation. And I say all this in the life of this young church, because regardless of when me or any of the other elders that are currently serving Patrick, 
decide that it's time to take a period of rest, at that time there will need to be qualified men to step up and continue to lead the church. And especially here, because you guys are going to be forming a brand new elder board to take up the roles and help support your pastor so that he's not fatigued by riding at the front of his pace line. So the elder board will have to be put in place and it needs to be able to effectively help shepherd the congregation. So in that knowledge, in this room, you should look around and consider who you would want taking up that mantle of leadership. You've probably already been doing it. I know that there will be nominations and stuff coming soon and getting into that process to start to build that leadership here. But you want to look around Observe the men sitting around you. See if they're qualified. See if you think that they would be effective in the church leadership. Not only that, look in the mirror and consider whether or not you might be qualified. Because one day, someone might reach out to you and let them know that your name has been brought before the congregation as someone who they feel would be a qualified elder. And when that time comes, we want everyone to understand exactly what it means and looks like to be an elder at Covenant Grace Church and what is expected from you as you protect the integrity of the gospel and protect the flock. Dear Lord, we're thankful for each other. We're thankful for being in a context where we expose Christ. And we're thankful that we're able to keep that as the center of everything we do in ministry. And Lord, as this church grows, as my own church grows, we ask that we continue to keep that in the forefront as we nominate new leaders, as we move forward as shepherding our congregation. Lord, it can be very hard to ensure as people grow that people don't get left behind, and that's why qualified people are needed, Father. So we want to make sure that everyone here feels loved, everyone here feels cared for, and that everyone is encouraged, not in their own work, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And it is his name we pray. Amen.